Or if you have a Bible, open up to Acts 16 tonight. We're going to read verses 6 through 10 to start us off. We ended with this passage last week, and we're going to return to it tonight to uh, set up the rest of this chapter, uh, which is the beginning of a brand new frontier for the church. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but uh, Acts 16 forward is when the dominoes start falling, uh, mountains start getting moved, and uh, churches start getting planted, and the future, the rest of the, the, the future that comes after this, that we're still a part of, um, that kind of the foundation gets built in Acts 16 for the Western world to become what it became and what it still is in, in so many ways. So Acts 16, verse 6 through 10, all of that lies in the balances of these verses. And that's what makes this so incredible to read tonight. Now, when they had gone through Pergia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And that's Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Don't think big Asia, Russia, and China. Think the, the territory that I'll show you on the map in just a minute. But nonetheless, Paul was headed in one direction and the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going there. Verse 7, after they had come to Asia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Myasia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia. And that's Greece. So that's the big uh, nation of Greece. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we... So notice there's a big, trend, big difference there. We've been reading about they... And now it's we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. That last part of that verse is going to be a big part of our sermon tonight. Concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Alrighty, so this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey that they, uh, remember they left Jerusalem, went back to Antioch, uh, the home base there in uh, Syria. Then they went to Antioch of Pisidia, uh, same, uh, different city, same name. They went to Antioch of Pisidia where they had planted a church previously. And then they were about to embark um, intending to go to Ephesus, to the churches, to, to the territory around Ephesus. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going there. Uh, and then Paul said, well, we'll just go north uh, to Bithynia. And then the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going there. And through the Spirit of God, God saw a or Paul saw a vision of, uh, from a man of Macedonia. It doesn't mean the man was in Macedonia. It, it just means this man was from there and he was asking Paul to come there and help him in his uh, efforts to tell the people about God. Maybe he was a Christian. Maybe he was hoping to know more about Jesus. We'll talk about that. But nonetheless, this man was from Macedonia, was looking for Paul to come and help them find out more about Jesus and more about the church. So uh, in the back of most of your Bibles, there are several maps. You'll see, you'll see maps of the Old Testament, Israel, and those time periods. And then the, in the, uh, the latter part of the maps, you'll have uh, a map of Israel in Jesus's day. And then you'll see Paul's first, second, third missionary journeys, and then his trip to Rome. So Paul's second missionary journey, I know this is, is hard for you to see, but hopefully you can get the gist of it. Um, the star down here in the corner is Antioch of Pisidia, which is where they were at, at verse 6, when they were about to embark to Ephesus. Now, the area there at the bottom right of the screen 
is referred to as Asia because in this day and age, this was called Asia. Now we know Asia to be the continent of all the, the countries, uh, a part of that, uh, that part of the world. But in this t- time period, Asia was what they referred to, was what we refer to as Turkey. So they wanted to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit said no. Now we know that later on, Paul goes to this territory because he plants churches in this territory. He spends three years in this territory. So it wasn't that he was not allowed to go there at all. It's just that that wasn't where God wanted him to go at this point. Also Bithynia to the north, Peter would take a team and go there not long after this. So it wasn't that God didn't want him to go there at all. It's just that that wasn't where, where he was supposed to go at this point. So you notice there's a very, uh, very kind of quick line from the star to uh, middle of the screen, Troas, which is kind of the, the, the city between um, the ancient world, the Middle East and Europe. Uh, kind of Constantinople or Istanbul is in that area today. So Paul goes to Troas and of course from Troas, he will go into Europe, the nation of Greece. Eventually he'll go to Rome. So uh, this is a big moment in world history because the, the movement that had been, uh, uh, that had started in Jerusalem had spread to the areas uh, of Turkey was now entering into Europe which of course would be such a big um, monumental, uh, would bring a monumental change uh, for the world um, after this. Now, again, that line that you see from Antioch to Troas is his direct response to this call. Paul and his team um, would not stop along the way. They would not detour here or there because the Holy Spirit said no to any of the options. What if we, and here's where we're going with this for the first part of our message, what if we were that sensitive to what God's plans were for us? You say there's no way to know with certainty like Paul knew. How do you know? What if we were that sensitive to God's plans as Paul and his team were? It wasn't that that, that going to any of those other cities would have been against God's will. Again, churches were planted there. But God's will for them at this present time was to quickly, without stopping, without idling, travel to Troas. We're told as he follows God's direction that he receives a vision from a Macedonian man, a man from Greece, who based on the change in narration in verse 10, verse number seven, it says they came to this city and that city. They came down to Troas and then from Troas forward, they become a we. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Because the narration so far has been they, because we know that Luke is writing the story. Up until this point, Luke has been writing about Paul, but beginning in Acts 16, Luke becomes a member of the team. And from this moment forward, it becomes a we. And, and save a few uh, passages for the rest of Acts, Luke's going to be right beside Paul even when he's arrested. Luke is there um, with Paul even when he's on the, tr- on the boat going to Rome as a prisoner. Luke stays by his side. Paul says in 2 Timothy, Luke has remained with me through all of this. So Luke joins the team somewhere in this exchange. When they get to Troas, maybe he was the Macedonian man that had called for Paul and then was walking towards Paul when Paul was walking towards him. We don't know that for certainty. Perhaps the Macedonian man was Theophilus, the one that commissioned Luke to write these two books, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Again, we don't know, but regardless, it's a pretty big moment in time as the narration goes from they to we because Luke joins the team. 
Now, we know that Luke, based on his uh, prologue in his gospel, Luke set out to write the, the, this two volume, uh, these two volumes um, because he was commissioned by a man named Theophilus to investigate and report on the Jesus movement. Luke tells us this in Luke chapter 1. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning things you have been taught. So Luke put, was a physician, takes off his, his physician hat and puts on a reporter's hat and goes to Jerusalem, begins to investigate about this movement. Again, Luke joins the team with Paul because upon investigating the movement, he joins the movement because he knows with certainty that God is in this movement. Now, Luke was a Gentile, yet he was a God-fearer. He was seeking out the one true God. He discovers the one true God through the church, through Paul's team. He joins this team, uh, maybe initially as just a curious investigator, but quickly he becomes a devoted follower of Jesus. A pretty big miracle there. Uh, again, a pretty big deal. It's all because Paul was sensitive to God's guidance and planning over his own. And I want to talk about that for just a few minutes. I want to really get, get in the mind of Paul and I want to try to get in the steps of Paul, get in the shoes of Paul about what it means to be sensitive to God's will for our lives. Paul in this scripture, even upon even trying to serve the Lord, Paul had his own plans. He wanted to go in one direction. He wanted to go in another direction, yet he always deferred to God's plans. Now, I'm not trying to question any of your spirituality, but I would imagine that we're not always like Paul trying to figure out which way we're going to go for the gospel's sake. A lot of times we're trying to just figure out which way we're going to go for our sake, Yet nonetheless, we must be sensitive to what God's plans for our lives are. Proverbs 16, verse 1 and 2 says this, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. As in, we think that what we come up with is a good thing. We think that we have got it all figured out. But God ultimately weighs the spirit. He weighs the decisions we make, whether they are pleasing to him. Proverbs 19, verse 21 tells us, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, that will last, that will count, that will make a difference. So I gotta ask you, whose plans are you following tonight? Whose will are you following? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So God has plans for us, doesn't he? Every one of us, God has plans. And that doesn't just mean that he has things that will please us. It means that he has plans that we are able to follow. It comes down to, do we want them? Will we put God's plans above our plans? Will we change and will we stop on a dime and change direction like Paul did for the glory of God? Think about how often we in our earthly lives, how we have our entire days, our entire weeks, our entire months, even our years, our lives planned out. Hardly ever do we consult with the Lord about what he would like us to do or we, do we ever leave room for him to lead us. Rather, we tell the Lord what our plans are and we think we're pretty spiritual for doing so, don't we? 
We say, God, I'll be at church this many times. I'm going to miss a few Sundays. I'll have, a, I'll have Bible time a few times a week. I'm going to pray as long as I'm not running late. I, I, I'm going to be doing this on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. My, my Saturdays are all for me. My summers are all for me. Holidays are all for me. But hey, God, I'm open for Tuesdays from 6 to 8. I've got some free time if you want to move in a big way. You know, I've got some free time next March, God. I'm going to take a few days off of work, going to take a week off from doing all this and that. I'm going to have a little bit of a window, God. If you want to move in my life, I'm available during this time. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to make us all aware at how we kind of operate. And we think we're pretty spiritual, don't we? It's no wonder God does not work in us like he did in Acts. It's no surprise that our generation is empty spiritually. We're so discontent. We're so hungry for something real. We have more hobbies than any generation, more toys than any generation, more luxuries than any generation, but we are spiritually dead. And we don't know which way to go. And this is true for us who frequent the church house as well. We expect God to move in these free three hours a week we've given him. And we should be here. And I'm not trying to say, well, what are we doing? It's good that we're here. But sometimes we put God in a box and say, God, if you're going to move, it's going to have to be in these three hours because I'm busy every other time of the day. If he chooses to work in those parameters, maybe we'll get to see something. <laughs> but if he wants to do something outside of that time, we don't know if we've got time for it. And I think, and, and you know, I really feel like the church has kind of danced around this for too long, and, and, and we have allowed God to take such a back seat to our priorities. Uh, and we think in ourselves, and we, we feel like we're, we're genuine when we think this. We think, surely, surely God will work on our schedules, right? Surely He'll accommodate our busy lives and make it easy on us, right? Surely He's not going to inconvenience us. You know what Acts reveals to us? That God is inviting us to a life that cannot be rivaled or matched through any other means. And we can get on board or we can miss it. Isn't this what the Gospels prepare us for? Isn't this what Jesus prepares us for and what Luke's Gospel really prepares us for? Think about this. And again, I want you to imagine how this must have landed on the original hearers because they didn't know who Jesus was like we know who Jesus is. And it still offends us. Can you imagine what it sounded like to them? In Luke 9, Jesus is before the crowds. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And they thought they were really making a big statement there. And Jesus sees right through their heart and says, I want to tell you guys, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You may, maybe you're following me because you think I'm headed to the Hilton suite and I'm going to have a nice penthouse for us all to enjoy. But I, I want to let you know that that's not where I'm going. He says, another said, follow me. <laughs> but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, which of course, that sounds like a decent thing to do. And, and this might be one of the most kind of harsh things Jesus ever said. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and preach the kingdom. I mean, hey, Jesus, uh, have a nice day. I mean, yet another I will say to you, yet another will say, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my house. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, who do you think you are, Jesus? 
Are you not grateful to have somebody on your team? Are you really, are you trying to run people off, Jesus? Because you're going to do it. Let me just ask you this. If Jesus makes these extreme statements, he's either out of his mind or he's actually telling the truth and that the kingdom of God is actually more worthy of our attention and our obedience than anything else. Jesus told that parable about the kingdom of God, about how the master had a big meal for this big dedication ceremony and he sent out his servants to invite people and we know how it goes. They all begin to make excuses. The first said, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it because Jesus, you have to understand that I bought this field and I need to take care of it and I've got to do all these things for it. And if I let it go, I won't have my income and I won't have my dreams and I won't have my plans. Please, will you excuse me? And another said, I bought some oxen, and of course I've got to take care of my animals, don't I? I've got to do this because my livelihood depends on these oxen being trained and being herded and being led. Would you please excuse me? And another said, I've gotten married and I can't come. Whether you excuse me or not, I can't. And you, you read that and you're thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you trying to say? Later on, Jesus says, and, and notice Luke says, there were great crowds there. Jesus had everybody's attention. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now just think, just stay there for a minute and think about that. Let's go back to that verse. Anyone comes to me and does not hate is this not the same guy that said love everybody? Yeah, it is. What is Jesus saying here? That our love for God and for the kingdom should be so strong and so devout that it makes our love for anything and everything else seem so far less. Now again, you can say, well, we can, you can say this is not being, he's not being serious. He's not, he's not really meaning this. I mean, we can water it down all we want. But I want you to understand that Jesus is trying to get us to see something here. He's trying to get our eyes to pay attention to something here. He's trying to open our hearts to something bigger than we often settle for. And he's not saying that we shouldn't follow our dreams and we shouldn't have family and we shouldn't be faithful to the people that he's given us in our lives. But he is saying there's something more glorious than we often settle for. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It doesn't say it's a bad disciple. He says you can't be my disciple. Now, Jesus didn't say this consecutively. I'm kind of packing this together because if he said this consecutively, nobody would have followed him, right? There was, some, there was some different things in the middle there, but I'm trying to pack it all together to prove a point. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So what has Luke been preparing us for? Luke telling the story that Jesus told. Luke is preparing us to count the cost because it's worth it. Now, I know Paul was an evangelist, and we're not, none of us are called to be, we're not any you know, professional evangelists because you wouldn't be here, you'd be out there on the, on, the, on, the camp, on the trail. 
I know Paul was an evangelist, and we aren't all called to do that. We're not all called to be preachers. We're not all called to be teachers. We're not all called to be servants in the church in a professional way. I get that. But all of us are called to be reliant on, sensitive to, and responsive to God as Paul was in Acts 6 through 10. Can we agree with that? That we're not all called to be evangelists, we're not all called to be preachers and pastors and teachers and servants in the church, but we are all called to be as reliant on, as sensitive to, and as responsive to God as Paul was in these verses. But we will never be that reliant, that sensitive, and that responsive if serving God is our secondary, tertiary, or any farther down the list priority. We won't. And that might answer to your, your questions as to why you're not, why we're not. I, 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 and I, I know, I know, I know this is not what normal Christianity looks like and sounds like in our world today. I know this seems kind of radical. But should that really be our litmus test, whether the world accepts it or not, whether it has time for it or not? Listen, my preacher, my, my job as a preacher is to herald God's word, delight in his message, exultingly deliver his word as the best possible pathway for your life. And I promise I'll always do that. Now, as a man, as a sinner, as a distractive as a distracted, earthly, invested, and rooted creature, of course, to me, this is extreme. This sounds crazy. As a man, as a sinner, this doesn't sit well with me. As a Christian, though, as a student of God's word, as a preacher of God's word, I can't stand in front of God's people and backpedal any of this. I can't present any of this as being anything but the only obedient posture and pathway we can adopt and should adopt. What we witness in Acts, the miracles, the power of God, the expansion of the church, all of that is a direct result of the church laid out before God in total surrender. A church that was not addled by personal obligations, political aspirations, or any ulterior motives. What we see in Acts is a church with one goal, exalt Jesus and thereby expand his kingdom. And anybody that says, what's different about the church today compared to back then? It's not that we don't sing the right songs. It's not that we don't dress the right way. It's not that our services are formatted differently. It's not that things aren't like they used to be in the way we often think they're not. The one difference between today's church and the church in Acts is that our one goal is not exalt Jesus and not expand his kingdom. We've got other priorities. And I think if we're just honest about that, and we quit, quit trying to blame things and put, point the finger at things, we might get to the right place quicker. People may say, well, Justin, do you think presenting this in such a way is going to convince casual believers to radically reform their lives? Well, honestly, I think if I present in any other way, it dilutes the power and it more importantly, it, de it deceives people because it hides the truth. And you say, well, Justin, you can't imagine, you can't expect us to have this same kind of zeal that Paul had. It's just not realistic. I mean, whether it sounds realistic or not, what this shows us is that the mandate that was over them 
is over us. The Great Commission, which calls us to live out and shout out the good news. Live it out and shout it out. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Your one obligation every single day is to live out and shout out the good news. Acts 16.10 should be our motive every single day, whether it's a day off or a day on, whether it's a day full of personal or professional obligations, whether it's a day of recreation. I don't care what you do, whether you're going out to make some money or going out to spend some money, whatever you want to do with your day, that's up to you and being obedient to God. But here's what your obligation is on that day. If you want to be sensitive to and responsive to God as Paul was. What, what does it say in verse 10? We concluded that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So our obligation every day we get out of bed, whether we're going to go to work or going to go play, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Let me break that down for you. You know what to preach means? It means to herald. You know what a heralder is or a herald was in the ancient world? It was somebody sent by the king to a city that the king was about to enter into. And the herald would go to the center of the town and would say, hear ye, hear ye, the king is on his way. The king is a good king. He's a benevolent king. He's a kind king. He wants you to be in his kingdom. But if you oppose him, if you stand against him, if you get in his way, he will be a conquering king. Hear ye, hear ye. The good news is the king is coming to make your life better. The king is coming to give you all the peace and the joy you could ever imagine. But you must surrender to him. You must put your faith in him because this king wants your trust. So what are we called to do every day? Whether we're going to play somewhere or work somewhere, we are called to preach the gospel, the good news. Who's them? Anybody you might come in contact with. If God decides to alter our plans in order to further his agenda at the expense of our plans, then we should rejoice and be glad knowing that God saw fit to intervene in our lives and save us from vanity. None of us are going to get to heaven and think, wow, we serve God too much. We serve God too devoutly with too much urgency. I I don't see that happening. (laughs) I think it'll be the opposite, don't you? We're all going to wonder, what did we do with our time? And let me make this very clear. Whatever we miss out on in this life will always be surpassed by what we did for the next and what we gain in the next life. I promise you that. Our eternal reward, our imperishable wreath depends on our faithfulness. Jesus said, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. You curious what that last part means? I am too. I don't know. But I do know that unless we're 100% focused on his call over our lives, we'll never find out. 
Throughout the rest of Acts, Paul embodies and exhibits the qualities of a radical, sold-out disciple of Jesus Christ. As a result, the power of God is always with him. The hand of God is always on him and through him. The rest of Acts 16 is ultimate proof that I want to quickly break down for the rest of our time. First up, we have a short story about Paul's first interaction in Greece in the city of Philippi. Look with me at verse 11 through 15. Therefore, sailing to Troas, or from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. From there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of the part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went, down to the, went out to the city of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. In the ancient world, if there weren't enough people to meet the quota for a synagogue, they would meet by the river in the city, which is what this most likely was. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she persuaded us. So Paul's first convert in the country, in the continent of Europe, in the country of Greece is this woman named Lydia. Now, I want you to pay attention to the, to, to, to the words in verse 14. I've put it up here for you, phrased a little bit differently. Back up, please. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That is the key part of that whole passage. It wasn't Paul's wisdom or his charisma that drew her to Jesus. He was a great preacher, but it was not what he did or what he said that won this woman to Jesus. It was God's supernatural power through him and to her. So a couple of things that we have here telling us how God works. Number one, when disciples obey and share the gospel with seekers and unbelievers, God moves. Disciples obey, God moves and opens the heart of those that hear as a response to his own faithfulness and his desire to save. Disciples obey, God moves and the hearer responds because of the faithfulness of the disciple and the supernatural work of God. This is how God works. One, two, three. Disciples obey, he moves, hearers respond. Now, you might say, God doesn't need us. He doesn't. But he chooses to use us. He is glorified by our participation. His redemption plan includes all of us involved in his ministry. Romans 10 says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching, heralding? You know why God uses preaching? He uses the weak things of this world to confound the wise and the strong. What is more confounding than God using us measly, incompetent creatures as vessels of his gospel? to bring more into his kingdom. This is why God uses humans in ways that may not seem supernatural, but very much are. God desires that through relationships, people come to Jesus and see the power of Christ because he made us to be one in Christ. 
God performs miracles through preachers, teachers, doctors, lawyers as they represent him and implement his grace and his power through what seem like common avenues. God performs miracles through your faithfulness to him and his mission. Through your interactions with others, God performs miracles. God is glorified by a sinner being raised to their new potential in Christ. And even more glorified by using sinners to share Christ with other sinners. Nothing glorifies God more than that. Because without a doubt, God made it possible. Speaking of miracles and the glory of God, the next story and our last story is one of the greatest in all of Scripture. It begins with Paul and his team facing arrest and soon after persecution and maybe death. But once again, once again, their faithfulness to God is the catalyst for the miracle working power of God. I want you to, fo- to remember that. Their faithfulness is the catalyst. Their unexpected endurance in the fire produced an unexpected yet undeniable outpouring of God's power because they were willing to put God's plans over their plans. Listen to verse 16 through 24. Now it happened as they went, as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her master as much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of that, her that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of a prophet was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And you know what would come next? They would be killed. Now imagine the scene here. Paul, his brand new teammates, fresh on the mission field, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. All on death row. Maybe way over their head. Paul was prepared for this moment as much as he was prepared for any moment in his life. Silas, Timothy, Luke, quickly get on board. Paul communicates to the rest of the guys, listen, y'all, I know this is brand new for y'all, but I've been here before. This is all part of God's plan. This trial is actually the perfect opportunity for God to make his power known more clearly and more effectively. So he says to them, follow my lead. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there were a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. 
Maybe the biggest part of the story isn't the worship and isn't the earthquake, but it's what Paul and his friends do after. What would you do if the walls of an unjust prison fell down? You'd run for your lives, wouldn't you? But what did this story start out by reminding us? Paul didn't move unless God said to. Verse 27. The keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm. We are all here. Are you insane, Paul? God answered your prayer. He knocked the walls down. Have you never read the Old Testament? It's your time to run from Pharaoh. Run from the prisoner guard, prison guard. You know what Paul knew? The same reason why he would change his plans in a minute if God said go here or go there. This miracle didn't take place for us to run out and be at our leisure, but so that others might witness the power of God and be saved. Don't you see the significance in that? Don't you see that Paul was just cut from something different? The story closes like this. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their stripes. Immediately he and his family were baptized. Now when he brought them out into his house, he set food before them. He rejoiced having believed in God with all of his household. I know this was long in a lot tonight, but I hope that the point has been made. What we've witnessed in this chapter more than anything is how Paul and his team were available and malleable. Now, flexible, it maybe is a better word, but malleable means willing and able to be bent and broken if necessary. This chapter brings so much before us that's so crucial. Are we available like Paul was? Are we malleable like he was? Are we willing for God to take us wherever and do whatever he sees fit to us in order to extend his hand through us? In 2 Corinthians 4, I would love for you to read this passage. I think it corresponds with our story tonight, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 through 18. Paul in that chapter says that we are jars of clay given the excellent power of God, the surpassing power of God. Paul says that we are always being poured out so that you might be filled up. He's talking to the church. He's talking to those that would hear and believe because of him. He says the weight on us is a glorious weight not a burden. Church, our focus is so intently on what we see, we miss what we can't see. What we can't see is what God wants to do, that it's greater than what we would ever want to do. What we can't see is what God can do in our trials. But if we are given over to this operating power of God, then we would feel something that we cannot feel in this world, the power of God alive in us, working through us. 
Paul says we're cast down but not dismayed. We're forsaken but not destroyed. Always bearing the body of Christ that his life might be manifested in us. Paul says the pressure of our suffering will always be surpassed by the saving power of God. Church, we must set our hearts on the things that are eternal so that God might work through us the things that make an eternal difference. Remember back in Acts 16 verse 10. We must get up every day concluding that God has appointed us and has called us to share the gospel. Isn't that what he said? We concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Sharing doesn't always mean preaching, but sometimes it means being used as an object of the demonstrating power of God, the ability of God to change lives for him, through us, for others, from him, through us, for others. This is our invitation every single day. The question is, are we willing? Are we available? Are we malleable? Our answers determine how powerful God will be through us. Let me be very honest with you. I am not as obedient to this message as I would like to be. None of us are. I know this is not normal. I know this is not what people accept as standard Christianity. But I stand before the church tonight knowing this is why the church in Acts saw the power of God over them, on them, and through them. They were available and they were malleable. So our answers will determine the measure of God's power through us. All because Paul was willing to say, okay, God, where you want me to go? Don't want me to do that? Okay, I won't do that. Want me to go there? I'll go there. You want me to sit in this prison even when the walls fall down and it's pitch black? I'll sit in this prison. Because I trust your plan. Oh, that we would have that kind of faith. That we could see that kind of power. Let me pray for you. Father, I believe... I believe that you're still the same God. I believe the church is still the same church. I believe the spirit is still the same spirit. I believe what is missing is the church laid out in front of you with their plans and their will and their desires. With all that we are and all that we have, what's missing is us poured out in front of you saying, not my will, but your will be done. We are available, we are malleable. We are willing to do whatever and to have whatever done to us and through us. As we read in the story tonight, God, it's not about what we say, it's about you working through us. Whether it's sharing the gospel to Lydia by the, sea, by the river, whether it's being in the prison praising God and then seeing the walls come down and staying there for somebody else to come in and lead them to Christ. It's about being a vessel of the power of God, whether through our words or through our lives. 
Lord, would you remind everybody tonight that they are a vessel of your power. They are a vessel of your glory. They are a vessel, whether they go to have a day off or whether they have three straight days on, they are a vessel for your glory. And whether you fill them up with goodness or fill them up with brokenness, whatever you fill them up with is what you are using them for and working in their lives so that your power might be on display through them, whether they're victory or whether they're trial. Lord, would you use our church? Would you use these saints? Would you use these disciples to make this kind of difference in our world? Would you use them? Would you show them the surpassing worth and the surpassing power of serving Jesus? What you can do on them and in them and through them if we would just simply determine that you have given us a calling to share the gospel. That's our priority. Lord, would you use us? Would you work your glory through us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.